Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. What's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. So glad to have you here with us today for episode 419 of the Speak Aloud podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome my friend Veronica Romney to this show. Now, not only is she known as the Dream Team Architect, but she's also helping take seven-figure companies to the next level through a close look at core functions and leadership. And so when it comes to building a business and building a speaking business, Veronica is the one that is equipping teams with the growth mindset needed to scale for success. So during our conversation today, she's going to be giving us the inside scoop on assessing the value individuals to your team, how to fix the leaky mechanics of your business, and why speakers face unique challenges and opportunities in building their own success. We're also going to talk about the three core functions of a business, why marketing is so important, how to develop a leadership shed list, and also what it looks like to intentionally and successfully build a team around you. Veronica's practical advice and expertise will challenge you to build something that really matters with the intentionality that makes all the difference. She's got a great story to share and knows what it takes to build success. So I promise you that you are going to to love what she has to say. So let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Veronica Romney. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be chatting with my friend Veronica Romney, talking about hiring and building a business and uh, building something that goes beyond just you standing on stage running your mouth. And so uh, excited to uh, chat with Veronica today. So Veronica, thanks for uh, joining us. Oh, super excited to be here. I've been a big fan of yours and the work that you do as an aspiring speaker myself. Cool, cool. Uh, all right. First of all, why don't you give us a little bit of background, context. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, give, give us all things Veronica. All things Veronica. Well, affectionately, I call myself a dream team architect. That is what a former employee of mine called me. And then because my marketing brain is what it is, I went to GoDaddy immediately. I was like, yep, that's <laughs> we're calling. We're going with that. So yes, I'm a dream team architect. I've been a fractional chief of staff for a number of clients. I mostly work with seven figure entrepreneurs who are trying to scale to eight. And I help them architect dream teams because you can build a business alone, but you can't scale it on your own. And so that's what I help my clients do where the C is doing what they should be doing as founder and not having to play all the roles, be the singer on stage and the band director behind the scenes. And it's hard. You get to a place where you start capping your own growth. And that's what I help people avoid doing. Well, one thing um, it kind of reminds me of is, is I've used this illustration uh, before, but in the book E-Myth by Michael Gerber, he talks about the, he uses the uh, example of a bakery and he talks about there's a different skill set in being a good baker and running a bakery. And those are just two different things. And so there's people that are really, really good at baking, baking bread, cupcakes, you know, cake, whatever it may be. Uh, but they just, they suck at actually running the bakery because those are just two different things. And, and those, the same thing is true with speakers where there's speakers that are amazing on stage, but the running the 
the business and just all that goes into that, the travel, the contracts, the logistics, the accounting, the cash flow, all of that. It's just, it's just a different thing and not everybody is wired for that. So what do you see, uh, like I know that you've worked with speakers, you've been a speaker, what do you see as some of the, the bigger challenges that a speakers run into whenever they are trying to be a baker and also run a bakery? Well, in the absence of effectively running your bakery, it requires you to bake 10 times harder. So like, especially when we're talking about speakers, right? Like it just means that you're on the road more often if you can't figure out the mechanics of generating more revenue off the stage than even on the stage. And then if you have a family life, there goes your family life. You're one of those road warriors that just like you pick up cash as soon as you like hit the road. And I, it breaks my heart because I mean, you know, this, regardless of the industry that you are a part of. I think everybody jumps into entrepreneurship for that promise of freedom, whether it be financial freedom, time freedom, you know, a freedom of choice to do what I want with what, who, who I want whenever I want, right? But then the business holds them captive because it's all the things that they didn't enjoy doing. So they thought they could go into business so they could just do the thing that, they're, that they love doing and they didn't have a boss tell them to do otherwise. And then they realize, oh, like I have to do my own QuickBooks. I have to do this. I have oh, like, that's not what I thought this would be. And this is not what I enjoy doing. And so then they try to outsource it or bring people to the party to delegate to. And that's where things go awry real fast. So where is it that, that like, I guess one big challenge for a lot of speakers and again, entrepreneurs in general is like, where do I even begin? Um, because it feels like, I need help. I recognize I need help. I'm not sure who I need. Uh, how can I afford them? You know, I'm barely making enough as is, uh, but I'm also drowning and I'm doing all the things. And so it's just kind of like, where do I even start? It's a question I get all the time. Who do I bring to my party first? Who do I add to the table first? And I think what's interesting is, and there's a lot of great advice out there, whether it be executive assistants, social sellers, social media assistants, like there's a lot of unicorns floating around that I think a lot of experts would point to. However, I think for me, when I'm meeting with my clients or meeting with somebody who's struggling with their team management or who to bring to the team, I really just try to meet our, my clients where they are. So like every, every founder, every CEO is completely unique. Your snowflake absolutely is unique. And so the skills that you bring to the table, like to just say, everybody needs an executive assistant would be ill-advised. Even for me, I still love to manage my inbox, even at my stage, at my level, right? So like, just because, yeah, anyways, what I'm trying to say here is like, what I tend to do with my clients is we kind of do a shed list, a leadership shed list. So it's like, you write everything down. This is not time tracking. This is just like dump out everything that you do on behalf of your business on a weekly basis, monthly basis, quarterly basis. And then I take out highlighters because I'm a nerd, usually three colors. And then I try to highlight what if, which of these activities serves which master? And I know that sounds weird, but to me, running a company has three core functions or services, right? You either serve the prospect, you serve the customer, or you serve the company. And so when I have my leaders kind of just dump out everything that they're doing on behalf of their business, we then take out our highlighters and we're like, okay, what, where are you spending the majority of the time and who are you serving the majority of the time? Is it the lead? Is it the client? Is it the company? And then where you are lopsided and you also can tell me and identify, I like, love, hate it. If you are lopsided in things that you hate to do, that's usually where I bring an aid first and foremost, but that depends on the CEO first. And so is it, I mean, is it worth kind of like thinking through the, the, like the ROI of the role or, cause it seems like, again, there's a lot of different variables that go into 
which roles make more sense. So, uh, for example, I'm thinking about like here within the speaker lab, we've got, you know, 30 something people on the team. And there's certain roles that like there's a very clear ROI to what it is that they do. Other roles that may be a little bit uh, less defined, but they're an important role within the company. We couldn't do what we do without them or they're kind of a, a downstream type of role. And so, you know, again, especially when early on when, when money and cash flow is tight and you're just going like every dime matters and you're trying to determine like, yeah, this person could take a couple of these things off my plate, but can I even afford that? Like how, how should how should speakers be thinking about that? Uh, I have a different perspective on this. I don't measure somebody's uh, value to me by their direct ROI um, because there's lead and lag measures, for example, right? So lead la- and lag. So lead is like, okay, I'm hiring a social seller. I'm hiring a salesperson. It's a very easy calculation. Are they selling? Are they not selling? Are they generating business and selling for the company or not? Um, I look at it more on a lag side. So if I do a leadership shed list and I see that you are completely lopsided where a lot of the bulk of your time is spent serving the company and you marked it as hating, I hate these activities and tasks please make it stop then bringing on an admin is actually probably the smartest thing you can do where this advice goes wrong or where we point the finger at the wrong person is when we don't replace the time that we gave to the admin with revenue generating activity ourselves and that is a lack of discipline on the ceo's part So if you bring on an admin role or a project manager or some of the things that don't have a direct calculated ROI, the ROI is in the lag. What what are you doing with that relieved five hours a week that should be drumming up business since you didn't, that's, that's what the business deserves that somebody else helped you clear more space for. What do you feel like for, from a a speaker's perspective, like where should they be spending the, the bulk of their time? Okay. So I, so for me, I think what I, where my heart kind of breaks for speakers in general, or even podcast hosts, basically like when you're on stage virtually in person, but like when your voice is being heard, it's like a moth to the flame. People are drawn to the message. They're drawn to your keynote. They're drawn to your perspective, your interpretation of something. Right. But then what's so sad to me is that on the other side of that activity, it's like a leaky bucket. Like you, you filled it up with the thing that you did with that messaging moment. And then it literally poured right out through your fingertips. It's why like a lot of people, I've heard this once from Brendan Bouchard on stage where he's like, I know a lot of people who had their 15 minutes of fame with Oprah and they didn't have the mechanics behind the scenes to catch the activity, to catch the interest. And so they're still broke. And yet they've had their 15 minutes on Oprah. And so what do you like, what's the best way to, I mean, because for most people, they're not going to have 15 minutes of fame. It's going to be, you know, just kind of like a slow, gradual, step-by-step-by-step process to, to build something. Um, so what, like, where should a speaker be spending time in order to prepare, whether the Oprah moment hits or not, that they are building a business? Because um, I remember like early on for me, I had a friend tell me early on that like speaking is a high paying manual labor job in that you get paid really, really well to stand on stage and talk, but the nature of it is you have to get on a plane, you have to leave your family, you have to go somewhere. It's like a surgeon, you know, a surgeon makes really, really good money, but they have to show up and perform surgery. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing. If you if you know, like, okay, this is what it is. And this is what I signed up for. But for a speaker who's going like, um, okay, I'm building, I'm doing, you know, five or 10 or 15 gigs, and I'm seeing the path that in the next couple of years, I may get to 30, 40, 50 gigs. And I'm just trying to think through like, what do I, how do I need to be thinking about this? What do I need to be processing now to make sure that I'm, I am building a business and so much more than just a, a high paying job? Yeah, I think you can either. So 
for the speakers listening, I think you go two routes. Either you're making very conscious efforts to start building your own stages so that you don't have to rely on other people's stages so that you can generate business money from home, right? Like I put up a stage in Raleigh, North Carolina, because I live 20 minutes out, right? Or it's a virtual stage and that way it's less grind on the road. Or um, every time you hit the stage, you're generating, able to generate more revenue off the stage because of the traction that you gain from the audience that heard you, because you either have a funnel to catch it, a course to catch it. There's something else. There's some other mechanism for you to go further with a person that liked what you had to say. Now for, uh, again, a lot of speakers there, it's kind of like going back to the bakery baker analogy for a lot of speakers, they're really good at one thing speaking. So they're, they're good. At, I'm really good at baking bread. Um, but I don't, I don't know how to bake cupcakes and I don't know how to bake some, you know, five tier wedding cake. And yeah, some of the, like the, the fundamentals of it may be similar, but it's just, a, it's a different deal. So telling a speaker like, uh, you know, thinking about creating an online course or doing some of those things. Yeah. Like see how that matters. But again, that also kind of goes to where do I even begin? Um, who do I hire for that? You know, is that a, is that a, a done for you a done a DIY thing? Or do I find someone who just does it all? Like how should a speaker be, be thinking about that? So I'm not a big proponent of you DIY, or I should say this. I'm not a big proponent of you outsourcing any kind of product creation, Um, the product is a reflection of the CEO. I mean, it's your expertise, it's your thought leadership. So can we slice and dice different ways to package your knowledge? Yes. Like we can have a whole conversation about whether it should be a course, a membership. I think we'd get lost in the weeds on that front. I think what's important is that you build a team to help you maintain and also market said expertness, right? And genius and your knowledge outside of just the stage. So where I often see a lot of speakers requiring help is in the marketing lane. And this is something that I tell, um, and this is, by the way, I struggle with this too. I've been in marketing for 15 plus years. Like I graduated in marketing, worked at ancestry.com, my first job out of school. Like I've, I've only ever really known um, and thrive in marketing centric organizations. But it, as a, as proficient as a marketer as I am, I cannot see my label through the jar. And this is what happens, I think, with any knowledge expert or thought leader is that we are so good or we are so close to the material that actually marketing ourselves is actually freaking impossible. It's so hard to see our label through the jar because we're all up in the jar of ourselves. And so even for me, I surround myself with marketers to help me market what I do because I can't see it uh, objectively, right? And I can't put myself back in the shoes of somebody hearing my message for the first time because I've now heard this message 20, I've already clocked in my 10,000 hours of mastery, right? So uh, marketing support is really, really nice to have around you in those early stages, I think of you becoming a speaker, because while you're focused on the mechanics on stage, your team can be focused on the responsiveness of the audience to your messages. What about from a sales perspective, meaning like marketing may be able to kind of help with brand awareness and building your email list and that sort of thing. But from a sales perspective, meaning like you you have someone who inquires or reaches out or, or marketing reaches out and you just have a warm lead of, are you available this date? Or tell me more about what you speak on. Or there's some type of interest. You have some type of, you know, you have a fish on the line, uh, so to speak, and you got to reel it in. Is that the job of the speaker? Is that the job of, you know, marketing or sales or, or, or you know, someone else? Or uh, how does the selling fit into it? It depends. I see it both ways. I see a lot of speakers or thought leaders do drum up their own sales, especially if it's high ticket, 
right? So if it's, if you're selling a $30,000 package or a $50,000 package, you're probably going to have some kind of application process. And they, at some point, I want to know that you grant think that this program is right for me. I, I want your validation and that's very difficult to outsource. Um, if the offer is less than, and it's in kind of mid ticket is where I can see some sales support come in. And that's usually even a scalable situation where you can validate a lot of people at one shot. Um, and then anything cheaper, if you're doing low ticket, I don't really see the, the aid of sales people um, because usually it's the mechanics of the funnel or the website that can convert on its own in good copy. What about for a speaking gig? Should the sales, uh, the, should the speaker be selling that or should they have someone doing that for them? So I actually just went to, uh, for example, I just went to a speaking uh, event in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina for Vistage. If you've heard of Vistage, it's kind of like another um, business group, uh, wildly successful. Anyways, there was a speaker on stage and literally from stage, not only is he talking and flexing and, you know, offering five, you know, five people in the audience, his book, but then he very quickly threw the authority to the other person in the room that he brought with him, which is director of business development. So he actually actually brings the sales team with him. And that I think is if you can afford that, I don't know if everybody can afford that to pay for somebody's flight and hotel and everything like that. But that was a really good example of somebody actually bringing their sales staff with them to divert and catch as many people in the room as opposed to singularly catching all the fish. Okay, let's take that for a second. Again, I think this is one challenge that so many speakers and entrepreneurs have is is like the cash flow part of it of going, I recognize I need some help. I would love to, you know, I would love to have someone full time. I'd love to have, you know, this, uh, not even just someone full time, but like a really high caliber someone full time. Um, but like, I, I just, I can't afford that while also trying to eat and live indoors myself. Um, so especially early on when you're, when you recognize you need help and you even recognize like what the role is that maybe you need, how do you determine whether or not you can afford it? How do you determine whether or not this is like a full-time role or a part-time or an employee or a contractor or a freelancer or an agency? And there's just a lot of different, there's a lot of options there on the buffet. So how do you kind of determine and make sense of, of what's what's best for you? Yeah, and you're right. It is hard because um, usually the, the driver of that conversation, or I should say the de- determining factor is your cash flow situation. Right. So some people, when they went, for example, I I think about my own experience when I went into full time speaking right before the pandemic. What a great time to do that. Great timing. So when I went all in on speaking, being a road warrior myself, I had already built up a cash reserve when I sold my marketing agency. So like I could actually bring people to the party a lot sooner and have like more of a full house to go and support the endeavors of my speaking engagement so I can generate more off stage than on stage. But if you're starting your speaking career and you don't have a cash reserve, that's dicey. That's where it gets hard because every person that takes from you, you have to be making sure that you replace the hours they took from you with even more strategic revenue generating activity. So I think this is why like, you know, big companies that get a lot of private funding, they basically build top down. So like if you're a company and you get a whole bunch of funding, you're starting with a chief suite, like it's a chief CEO, COO, CMO, and then you know that you're bringing in these A players and they're going to build down. They're going to, they're going to bring in their best copywriters. They're going to bring in their best product. Like they're going to bring in their friends. When you're bootstrapping any company, any company at all, you start from bottom up. You start with the doers that help you relieve the task. And then once you have enough doers and you have too many chicks to manage is when you start bringing in middle managers, right? That's when you start bringing in rainmakers and DOOs and OBMs. Like that's when you start bringing in the support. So you go from having lots of direct reports to only one or two. So it just depends on your cash flow situation, what your CFO wants you to do. Let's be honest. 
when we're thinking about just from a a whether or not we can afford certain roles, um, how what like what are some of the the different types of comp plans that you have seen that may make sense, especially when you're looking for like some initial uh, part time or or you know part to full time type roles? Is that just a straight salary or is that um, because part of the challenge with being a speaker is, is you've got you have big ebbs and flows in cash flow, and so you may have a you know a month or two where you're making bank and a month or two where you have just it's just there's nothing going on. So how do you kind of balance that out? Yeah, it's feast or famine. Same thing when you work with online course creators or, or, or CEOs that have a lot of info product based businesses. If they're not launching, that's a, it's a dry month. If they're launching, it's a great month. And that's there's a lot of pressure on the launch to do that. Right. So for me, I regardless of your zero dollars or if you're already at seven figures, everybody in the business should be revenue incentivized in some capacity, period. And so whether it is, for example, you, especially if it's like a part-time person, so then it's different, right? Salary, you can set the parameters. If they're a contractor, they set the parameters. They tell you what their rate is or their retainer is. I personally like to incentivize people with revenue in all positions. So if they're in the marketing lane and they're serving the prospect and nurturing and building the lead, then they are absolutely revenue incentivized. So like if they sell in the DMs or if they have uh, their contribution in the launch or some kind revenue generating activity, they can either get a cut from that activity or they get a piece from everybody they bring to the table. If I'm incentivizing customer centric individuals, they too are revenue incentivized, but it's different. They're not incentivized or they don't get a cut of converting $0 to $1 like marketers do. But customer people, those closest to the customer, their job is customer lifetime value. They stretch the dollar from one to two plus. So that's upselling, cross-selling, downselling, retention. All of that too can be incentivized. And then even with like our company-centric people, they're saving us money. They're protecting it. They're counting the cash. Like everybody has an eye on the dollar from a different angle from their specialties, whether it's converting it for the first time, stretching it, or saving it. Gotcha. And so should people just be on like a straight salary or a salary plus some type of like if someone's incentivized by, you know, the P&L in some way um, and it sounds like, you know, from your perspective, everyone should be incentivized in some way, which I, I, I agree with. Like, what should that comp plan look like for someone? Yeah, I think it just depends. Like very recently, um, I actually have it in my Remaker hiring kit. I, I, I solicit it without disclosing names, but I polled all of the CEOs in my group and asked them like, hey, what are you paying your Rainmakers? Which a Rainmaker is a marketing leader and that can be marketing manager, marketing director, the head of marketing. There's a lot of titles, um, but basically runs the marketing lane. And I was asking them, how much do you pay Rainmakers? And most of the CEOs, just to give you an idea, are somewhere between 50000 monthly reoccurring revenue all the way up to like 300,000. So like that's kind of the spread of CEO in my group. And I asked them, how much are you compensating these really critical revenue generating individuals? I mean, these are marketing leaders. And the average was about four to $6,000 in some kind of monthly base or retainer. That was the average. And then there was always some kind of revenue cut and they did it differently. Some people would pay out every quarter off some percentage off net. Some people would do launch um, incentive. So every launch, they would get a cut depending if they hit their good, better, best goals. Some people would do company milestones. So once the company hit a million, 1.5, two, then there would be like a distribution of X percent. So everybody did it a little bit differently, what was comfortable for them, but there was absolutely a base plus performance. 
So early on, especially like way before you can afford a full-time person and you're looking for a part-time person, should that just be hourly or on a contract basis or like a per project basis or how, what should comp look like in that situation? Yeah, my honestly for me and trying to manage my P&L, wrangle the P&L, I'm always way more comfortable with set retainers. And I try to, I, if I can and negotiate, it works for everybody. It's a set retainer. I, even now when I think about my own business, I have my designer who has X percent or not percent, but X amount in a retainer. I have my support, my customer success, like everybody's on a set retainer, but then I know where the scale hits, right? So like the set retainer, when we're at 10 members or the set retainer, what that looks like when we go to double 20 members or 30 or 40, like I can, I can have those conversations when we hit certain threshold that are determinant of their role because that's their responsibility, if that makes sense. At what point does it make sense for people to just be, you know, contractors, freelancers, uh, part-time versus at what point does it make sense for someone to be an employee? Well, as soon as you treat a contractor like an employee, now we have a problem. <laughs> so like, let's, I'm not the lawyer, but there's the legalities of like how you treat somebody is really going to determine what classification that you should really have them under. Um, but I think for me, Um, And it's always such a surprise to me every time I've ever gone behind the scenes of some of the big brands that I've had the opportunity to work with. I'm always so surprised how many of them are still operating with part timers or very minimal hour type of individuals. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We are a content house. We produce content at such a level of of sanity, but we rely on a writer in Canada that only gives us two days a week. So like, Again, I think dependent on the nature of your business and how hard you play when it comes to that content creator machine that never sleeps is really a reflection of the team that needs to support it. But if you're having, the company has to be producing on a daily basis, it's gonna be really difficult for you to continue to depend on part-time people. So I think there needs to be some, again, I think whether it's a shed list or, or a time activity that you're keeping track of, but like, you'll know when you've hit the wall where you need more capacity from somebody. And if you're already at 30 hours with somebody, might as well just bring them on full time. Cause at some point there's a diminishing return where you're paying them so much that you get further with a salaried person. And so let's assume that someone's got, let's say they've got a couple of team members and they are, uh, again, realizing that they need some additional help and they realize they need some additional help in maybe a couple different places. Is it kind of just a constant exercise of going back to that shed list of going, whether I have zero or five or 10 or a hundred people of just kind of going back to that shed list and determining what do I need now? What does the business need now? Yeah, it's interesting because I I know a lot of corporations, for example, they go through these quarterly exercises or biannual exercises where they'll just like the mandate is to cut 10%. They just cut 10% of their staff, which basically means like find your weakest links and shed. And it's like, okay, so either we can look at them like, like we can either look at human beings like they're not human beings or we go to the team and every quarter or more frequently if you are in a really fast growth pace you're looking at what everybody's contributing and having everybody on the team doing shed lists. So like when I work with my clients and we do some VIP intensives and I'm coming in to kind of play Tetris with the team, not only do I have the leaders do a shed list, but I have individual team members do a shed list. And we can look on a piece of paper objectively, like what's actually moving the needle. And I think what's often so shocking from a CEO's perspective is like, I had no idea this person was doing this stuff. I didn't even know. Why are they doing that stuff? Well, right? Like the lack of awareness of what your people are doing or how little things creep onto their list is always so like shocking. 
And so having your entire team be cognizant of what they're doing and having it documented in a shed list and then reviewing those shed lists to see what you can clean up. So instead of cleaning up 10% of your staff, cleaning up 10%, 20% of the non-needle moving activities that they're doing on their list would be a more efficient use of your time. Gotcha. Uh, let's talk about sourcing for a second. Uh, where do you find all of these amazing people? Again, whether you're you're hiring that very first super super part time person, uh, or you're looking for you know a high caliber uh, you know executive type person to help you grow the business. Where do we find these people? Yeah, so I'm going to give you advice that is ironically even not how I came up in my career. All of the jobs that I have ever had have been cold. Like I worked at Ancestry.com cold. I got my job as director of marketing suite products at Entrada cold. It's, it's just the irony of it. And yet when I was chief of staff and I'm now, um, bringing people on to our clients or the employers that I was chief of staff for, I would not advise you to do it cold. So here's what I would advise. This is where I have been the most fortunate and have had the longest standing team members ever, like years and years they have been with me. First and foremost, um, like referrals is phenomenal, but, but can I add an, a huge asterisk to that? Um, and I, I don't like classifying people as A or B or C, but just for the sake of like communicating this point, A players recommend A players and B players recommend B players. So when you're taking a referral, be very picky who the referral is being sourced from. Because if I consider myself to be an A player, I am very picky of who I recommend because whatever experience you have with that person is a reflection of my brand. And I take that really, really seriously. And so sometimes we take on team members that are not the strongest in the company. And then we'll ask the whole company to give us referrals. And then some, and then we get referrals from members that are not the, anyways, you get what I'm saying. So just a, a players recommend A players. So if you're going to take a referral, just be picky about the source of that referral more than even just where the, you know, the fact that it came from a referral. That's number one. Number two, I, I'm biased. I tend to look within before I look without. Um, so I like to develop talent. Quite frankly, it is less cumbersome on my part from an onboarding perspective if I can just train up because I'm not taking somebody from the outside that has bad habits that I have to rewire. So I love, I in all the co- or companies I've worked at and or that I've initiated, I would have partnerships with the local universities and we'd have internship programs. And we could see from our, in, like, right? So like we would take somebody from an intern position and build them all the way up to like a director position. And they were so grateful because you were just pouring into their human capital left and right. And to me, there was no bad habits that I had to get out of the way versus somebody that had a really great acumen on their resume, right? So if you have talent within, um, then develop that talent because you already know them, you rapport with them, there's trust with them, and they'd be so grateful and they'll stay with you for a really long time because of that generosity on your part, right? Versus just hiring somebody outside. The third place I would say, and this is certainly has been a benefit to me, is sourcing from your own students, clients, customers, um, people. I call it, it's basically converting a walking testimonial into a team member. They're already bought into your values, your mission, your business. That's done. They've already hopefully even consumed the product. So talk about really cutting your onboarding in half, if not more, because all that you're really doing is making sure that they're comfortable in the position that you need them. But all that other foundational stuff that a lot of people don't get in their onboarding, they already got it. 
they're already a walking testimonial that you brought in house and they and they I mean again the loyalty is already there they've already fit the values so those are my three go-to places that I always source this is how I became a Tony Robbins speaker for Dean when they did their KBB launch I, I purchased the program there was like thousands of us they wanted to build an elite speaker team and 650 of us applied and I made it to the top five like they literally sourced within and they still do it to this day I mean, I can speak to that just within the speaker lab that we've got several team members that have been past students or clients and they have, you know, quote unquote, drunk the the proverbial Kool-Aid. They're bought in. They're familiar with us. Um, You know, they have they've used the product. They've had experience with it. So, yeah, it's definitely it's a different thing than someone who's going like. Now, what do you guys do again? And who, you know, that's, it, you know, someone who's just responded to a, a job listing or job posting or something like that. Um, okay, Veronica, we've covered a lot of ground here. Anything we've missed? Any final words of wisdom just for a hiring, uh, building a team for, for speakers? I, I just want to empathize with anybody who's listening to this podcast and, and they're saying, I've done this and it's not working. Because I will say, I mean, like being a parent, when you're responsible for other human beings, it's not easy. And they don't come with manuals and everybody wants to do their best. And there's a lot of relationship dynamics that's hard. Like, are you the friend kind of manager? Are you too tight of a manager? Like, are you the palm tree that's willing to bend in a storm? Are you not? (laughs) You're like the oak tree in North Carolina, like it gets uprooted with like 25 miles per hour wind, you know? So I I understand that. I just want to express my empathy. Team, Team scaling, team building is not easy. And I find that regardless of how much training that you've had in becoming a manager or the lack of example shown on to you, the greatest thing that will ever serve you is just your affection and love for the person that you're serving. And so for me, like my go-to, you know, leadership quality is like, do you actually enjoy these human beings? Like the person, do you, do you stand taller thinking that you make other people stand taller? Because then that helps you. That's your guiding compass. If you don't know the little nuances of one situation to another, because I mean, there's so many things that could go when managing other people in their lives. But I think for me, it's like, am I, is, is the result of this conversation, whether it needs to be corrective or not, that they stand taller and they know that I'm giving it to them because I want them to be better. Like that is my kind of my guiding principle. Very cool. Veronica, if, uh, if people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, where can we go? VeronicaRomney.com. Awesome. We appreciate the time. Thanks, Grant. All right. There you have it. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Speaker Lab podcast. Now, I want you to know that we do this podcast simply because we want to serve and support speakers like you. We don't charge anything for you to listen, but in return, we do have one small favor to ask. Would you be willing to subscribe to the podcast where you're listening right now? Hit that subscribe button. Also, leave us a rating and review within iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to these podcasts. We read every single one of them, and they also help other people to find the show. Also, if you are looking to take the next step in growing your speaking business, be sure and check out thespeakerlab.com. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com. We've got a ton of free resources and tools there, and you can also learn more about the programs that we offer, which include one-on-one coaching. Our mission here is to help you find the confidence, clarity, and clear path that you need to own your speaking success. So again, check us out over at thespeakerlab.com. As always, we appreciate you hanging out with us and we'll catch you next time. You're awesome.